I think it also too it, it puts women in a very uh, precarious position where they almost feel pressured, like they have to pursue something for the you know for the sake of women's rights when in fact that they are designed by God to bear children, children. and to birth exactly. children. Exactly. Yeah. And when you when you villainize that that kind of life and make it unappealing, I think it puts women in a very in a very a place of deep tension. Well, I, I think it's anti women to downgrade having children and the role of having children. Uh, I don't think that is pro women. I think it's anti women because the the very precious thing that that women are uh, gifted to do, they're denied, and or they're told is not of value. Welcome, everybody, to the Good Theology Podcast, brought to you today by our presenting sponsor, Dwell Bible. Did you know that the average adult checks their device 261 times over the course of the day? That depresses me about myself. Look at uh, Dr. David is on his phone right now. <laughs> and so that's just a fact, which means that for better or worse, a lot of ministry happens now uh, in the space between people's thumb and their fingers on their phone. And our presenting sponsor, Dwell Bible, has built a church platform that equips pastors to help your congregation stay anchored in God's Word with Dwell's popular audio Bible experiences. If you're a pastor wondering if Dwell is the right discipleship tool for you, lots of pastors are talking about doing discipleship better, then Dwell would like to gift you a free one-year individual subscription to try it out for yourself. You can get Dwell for free, explore all of its benefits through us. All you have to do is text the word good, G-O-O-D, to 39383, and then the team will get in touch with you, Tell you you can tell them where to send it. Uh, and you can also uh, go to dwellbible.com slash good, I believe. But text the word good to 39383, and I know that you all will be blessed by that. David, how are you today? Good, thank you. Wonderful to be with you, as always. So enjoyed our last conversation on revival and faith. That was uh, one of my favorite episodes today, I think. Well, you know, what? we all need more of the Holy Spirit. And how are you to find revival? Basically, it means life, and we can all do more life. We, in church here in, uh, in Michigan, Centerville, on Sunday morning, um, I didn't even know whether I was going to be able to get to preach or not. Wow. And just the Holy Spirit broke out. Um, we've had some miracles of healing. Uh, people were flooding the front. Uh, the worship went on and on, and it was it was just amazing. And uh, uh, you know, I, the the more of that, the better. Uh, and even if somebody else is doing it not the way that we're doing it, I don't really care as long as God shows up. Yes, all. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. I uh, I saw just yesterday, I believe that the I think the dean of Asbury has decided to start winding down the uh, nonstop meeting that they've been having. So I think it's carrying on in some form through Wednesday. Uh, well, we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, February fourteenth. It comes out a week later, but uh, by the time you all are listening to this, I think the meetings will have been wound down to the, just their normal schedule at Asbury. So I'm really curious. What comes out of that? You know, is there going to be some um, some spreading of what God is doing there around about to other places? I really hope so. Um, I honestly, I feel the same hunger in our church. W worship is just it's sweeter, um, and it, it feels like it could just go on forever. So, God willing, honestly, but there's there's a move of His Holy Spirit that's going to come upon our our nation. Um, I, I don't know whether we talked about this uh, last week, but it's worth, probably worth saying again that um, the last major move of God, which was the Jesus movement, took place at a time when society was really falling apart. Right. And all the tradition. That, that was the 60s, right? In the 1960s. It was a time of social up, absolute upheaval. 
it was really modernism. Now it's postmodernism, but it's it, there are a lot of similarities. And just to the point when you think everything's going to pot, which it was everything literally going to pot in the 1960s, <laughs> um, uh, you know, God shows up. And um, and I think at this time of, you know, we, we would all recognize that between um, breakdown of culture, between all the sort of postmodern woke type stuff is coming in, you know, with COVID, with pandemic, um, with worldwide, you know, calamities going on, that that we live in a very very unsettled time, uh, and and a time when it looks like everything is going downhill fast. But that's just the time that God shows up. That's what happened with Wesley in 18th century England. Things were a disaster. You know, spiritual life and churches were dead as a dodo. Uh, alcoholism was rampant. Uh, you know, families were falling apart. And that's just when God shows up. Uh, and so, you know, the last major move happened 60-odd uh, years ago at a similar pivotal moment in history. And uh, I think and there's a movie coming out about that this week. Sorry, I think there's a at the time of us recording. There's a movie coming out this week. I think called the Jesus Revolution. Is yeah. that is that the same time frame as the yeah. Jesus movie? Yeah. And well, you should know because it all happened in Southern California. Well, I think it features yeah. Chuck Smith of um, yeah, yeah Calvary Chapel. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's it. That's where it all kicked off. Well, I think there's a yeah. film coming out this week that supposedly is is done pretty well. I haven't seen it. Haven't seen any kind of uh, trailer for it or anything. So I can't necessarily speak myself, but and, I'll definitely check it out. For what, it, for what it's worth, there was a similar movement at Asbury at, at that time. At least there was. It's 1971, I think, somewhere around there. So, you know, uh, we'll just see. I, uh, we'll, we'll just see what happens. But yeah. God, God, can, the film. God can undo a, a whole heap of moral decay. Um, and he does that at an individual basis, and he, he can do it at a, at a, a much larger basis across societies as, as well. I was listening to an interesting conversation, actually, uh, just recently. There's a, a new book that I want to read. It's not on iBooks yet, so I haven't downloaded it, but it's called The Genesis of Gender. The author's name is Abigail. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. It looks like Favali or Favale. Um, But her story is that she grew up uh, an evangelical Christian got super wrapped up in uh, postmodern feminism, bought into Judith Butler, all of the ideas that go along with gender being a social construct, it being nothing but performance. Um, and through that was, you know, kind of maintaining her Christianity uh, as a, a bit of a veneer. Um, I don't think she would have realized that at the time, but came to that realization that her 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 foundation for life was really her feminism and then ultimately through all that she uh, ended up becoming a, a catholic and has come back to her faith and now she's written uh, a book on the whole she calls it the gender paradigm she thinks that's a more um accurate description than just gender ideology but she's writing uh about all that and and in trying to be helpful for Christians who need to be able to engage with these things and pull people out of darkness. Um, so it's really interesting. So she's a, just the most recent example I've heard of. If someone could be fully off the reservation, uh, completely anti-Christ, unbiblical ideas, ideologies infecting the mind and the heart, and then God takes over. And, and, and now she's a devout Catholic. Um, so she has some interesting things to say, I think, about uh, what the role of contraception has played in uh, this gender mess that we have found ourselves in, which are ideas I'm curious about and um, have actually thought a bit about myself as well. So, um, but maybe that's a conversation for uh, another time. In, in connection to that, though, uh, I want to talk to you today about abortion and the death penalty. W one of the lines of logic that I hear from a progressive a secularist, even a confused Christian um, at times is this this sentiment that you can't be anti-abortion 
and pro-death penalty, that to be against abortion and in favor of some kind of capital punishment uh, is itself illogical. And I find that claim to be illogical. I don't think that those two go against one another um, in the slightest. I think you're dealing with apples and oranges there. That's not to say that capital punishment should not be very, very carefully arrived at and um, and thought through deeply. I don't think that it's something you know that is the appropriate punishment for any old crime. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I don't think capital punishment and abortion are at odds with one another when it comes to being anti-abortion and in favor of capital punishment. Is this something at all that you've thought about? Well, I think that um, I've seen that argument. Uh, I think that um, from a biblical perspective, um, it's if you, you know, if you shed someone's blood, your blood will be shed. So the idea is it's not a ret retribution. It's actually um, a, a valuing of life. So life is so precious that if you take another person's life, then you, you forfeit your own. Uh, and that is a, that places the highest possible valuation on life. Um, so that uh, from a biblical perspective, capital punishment is a, is a valuing of life. Uh, and the idea being that it's also a deterrent um, that if you have, uh, if you withdraw the deterrent, you'll get a disregard for life and innocent people will be will be killed. Uh, so, uh, whereas with abortion, it's simply, on our understanding, murder. It's capital punishment of the people who least deserve it. So I think you're... I would turn the argument back and on its head against those people and say, look, you're proposing to... Uh, execute capital punishment on the most innocent people on earth and you're proposing to protect uh, people from capital punishment who most deserve it. Where's the logic in that? That's how I would see it. And again, I agree with you. I mean, it's it's a court of last resort, uh, capital punishment, and uh, it it requires a strong, fair, and impartial judicial system uh, because if not, then you just kept people taken out and shot for any old reason, you know, in dictatorships and so on, where the value of life is very cheap. Um, but uh, the l logic of it, the logic of a pro-capital punishment, uh, anti-abortion position, that, that is a logical position. The reverse is an illogical position. So right. well, that's how I see it. To be pro-abortion and anti- pro-abortion and anti-capital punishment right. is the most illogical, ridiculous position to hold. <laughs> is there a biblical precedent for capital punishment in the New Testament? I mean, you cited, obviously, God's law for Israel, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which I've understood as God's God's measure of protection so that justice was maintained in the sense that punishment never never exceeded the crime. Mm -hmm. um, and in the New Testament, I think the passage that a lot of people think of is Romans 13, where Paul talks about how the government bears the sword. It, it does seem to me there like Paul is saying, whether he's implicitly stating it or explicitly talking about it, it seems that his frame of thinking capital punishment is a, a just punishment when it's arrived at justly. Well, yeah, that's clear. And I think it's Acts 26 where Paul is appearing before Festus and Agrippa and says, if I've done anything worthy of uh, the death penalty, then I accept it. Uh, so he's saying he's happy to, not happy, but he's quite willing to, <laughs> yeah. to the, so to speak, to the death penalty if, if he's done anything deserving it. So that was Paul's opinion. And you're right that when you set the Old Testament against 
uh, contemporary uh, law codes in the ancient Near East. It's the eye for an eye is a protective measure. But I, you also have to realize that it, the book of Revelation is shot through with an eye for an eye. Uh, if, 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 mm. if it's something I never realized until I began to study Revelation, you know, very seriously a um, number of years ago, and uh, it's right there. You know, you will die. You, you will receive the punishment that you've meted out to others. It's, it's, it's a consistent theme in revelations which indicates that it's something that is in god's conception of justice uh and that's an eternal truth so and you know i mean what else is paul saying in galatians uh, 6 when he says you know you'll reap what you sow uh it's an eye for an eye and and we know that that's what happens in life. We reap what we sow. So, uh, if and if you if you reap, uh, it, if you sow uh, in the direction of taking the life of another person, then you reap the punishment for that. Uh, and and but in God's economy, that is a protection of life not a diminishing of life. Mm -hmm. Because it upholds the value of life in principle, not just in particular. Right. Does the New Testament give us any hinting or direction in terms of what kind of crime warrants capital punishment? Well, um, see, the in the Old Testament, you've got a theocratic society. You've got a society that, where God is ruler and decrees and determines the uh, extent and nature of the laws. And so in that, you get a kind of an ideal. Uh, in the New Testament, um, the, the people of God uh, are not living in a theocratic society. They're living in under all kinds of different uh, right. rulerships, yep. um, but none, none of which really are godly. Uh, and so Paul's defense of civil government in Romans 13 is uh, that God has instituted civil government for the, for the sake of maintaining order and protection in society, uh, and so he endorses and upholds it, uh, even though it may be fallen, uh, bad government is better than no government um, because Satan is the author of chaos and confusion. So um, Paul understands that God has created the entire cosmos with an order. And, uh, uh, you know, the more you understand the latest discoveries in science, the more remarkable that order is becomes uh it's extraordinary beyond extraordinary and totally supernatural as per the discussion a few weeks ago we had with Corey stevenson um but god also has created human society and even in even in its fallenness it still bears the signs of god's order and uh and part of that order is is defined in romans 13 as being you know the power of the sword so that uh, the possibility is there of capital punishment in a civil society. Yeah, he says in verse 4 of Romans 13, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. To me, it doesn't get any more cut and dry than that. They don't bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath. What what specifically does Paul mean by agent of wrath? So, so I, I take that to mean that they're administering the wrath of God, so that in some way, even through fallen human government, God is administering justice? Is that... Yeah, because, because um, uh, uh, even 
in our fallen condition, civil government still represents God's uh, desire to God's desire for justice, for justice in society where, you know, for instance, the weak and the innocent and the poor and the powerless are protected um, against evildoers and those who would abuse them. Uh, and so... Um, what keeps that thought from running away, though, into the realm of, well, therefore, everything government does is sovereignly decreed and right? Well, because we understand that uh, we under we understand that um, uh, in the fallenness of creation, that no human government is is. I mean, the counterpoint to Romans thirteen is the portrayal of fallen human government in the Book of Revelation, where uh, Babylon is presented, you know, as a, a demonically inspired system. And uh, when you put that together with Romans 13, you realize that the purpose of God is to use civil government for the restraining of evil and the promotion of order, which is why Paul urges uh, us in, I think, First Timothy to pray for, for kings and those in government that there be order. Um, but at the same time, the forces of evil are working to corrupt human government for their purposes. So at any given point in history, depending on where you're living, and it, it doesn't take somebody with a PhD to figure out, you know, casting your eye around the world today, some of the places where Satan is operating human government in a very uh, awful way to destroy people, that is corrupting its proper purpose. But there are other places where God is using human government in a, in a positive way, even though I, I not think- in a Maybe a helpful way to think about it is Paul, he he says here, uh, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear for the one in, of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. So what, what I hear, what I hear the Spirit saying through that text is, if we are punished for doing wrong, then we we are safe to affirm that God is administering justice. If we are punished for doing right, then we are safe to affirm that uh, our 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 government structures have been demonically inspired. So it, it, I think for the for the discerning person, for the Christian, they have to go. For what reason is punishment coming? And if it's punishment in response to doing what's right, standing for justice. Uh, you know, standing for a just society, then I think at that measure, you have to go, well, our highest allegiance is to the God who instituted the government in the first place, not the government itself. And therefore, to continue to stand for what's right. I mean, this is where martyrdom comes from. That's that's why you have martyrs is because they, they refuse to bow the knee to Caesar. They're not doing what their government commanded them to do in order to keep their allegiance to the one who instituted government in the first place. So maybe that's the way for Christians to think about it in terms of yeah, and it's it's the same as Paul says to slaves in relation to masters, which today we could say employers and employees. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's saying um, don't suffer for doing wrong. Be a good employee, and if you're treated badly, then know that God will deal with your employer. You know, it, the employer will not escape the justice of God. But it's better to suffer for doing right, if that's God's will, than for doing wrong. So you should be a good employee, not a bad one. And at the very least, you've established a Christian witness in the midst of your workplace. Um, even if you suffer for doing evil, in the end, God will vindicate you. Uh, and you apply the same thing to other authority structures, such as government. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So... T- to me, it seems like there is a, a, a very strong biblical case for capital punishment. Must a Christian be pro-capital punishment? Can you be a Christian and and actually say, no, I think capital punishment is always wrong? Well, you, you can be a Christian and hold various views. I mean, you know, 
uh, in the part of the United States I'm in at the moment, they'd hardly think you could be a Christian and be a Democrat. Uh, <laughs> whereas, uh, whereas you go over to England and they might say the opposite right? Uh, in their relative political terms. So, you know, I, I think we just need to be very, very careful about saying who can be a Christian and who can't. I mean, that pertains to your personal walk with the Lord and the details of your salvation. And, uh, you know, I think that other subjects like, for instance, the role of capital punishment is a peripheral matter. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't devote some thought to it, but I don't think we should put it at the center of our doctrinal discussions. Abortion is, is different. To me, abortion is one of those issues that is a profoundly biblical moral issue at the heart of our understanding of the, the image of God and and of of Christ himself. Uh, and I find it, it, I mean, I do find it in my head, I find it very hard to imagine how people could be advocates of abortion. I'm, I'm not talking about situations, peculiar, extraordinary situations where an abortion, I'm just talking about people who are out there saying, you know, abortion is, is a great thing. I don't know how you can have the Holy Spirit within you which is being a Christian, and take that position. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying God hasn't got a way of, you know, doing that with people, but uh, I can't figure it out. But I think we, we need to be very careful about a ton of other issues as to, you know, whether we define who's a Christian, who isn't, or even how mature someone is or isn't, depending on a particular social or political position they've got. Because usually there are valid biblical reasons for both. And you have to come to that. That's why, you know, we need people in the body of Christ who will think deeply about some of these things and help us in them. And and we need to avoid kind of knee-jerk reactions. I can't think of any valid biblical reasons for why you would be against capital punishment. I can think of misunderstandings of Jesus's sayings when he says things like, um, turn the other cheek or uh, do good to those who, who are evil towards you, you know, th those ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but I think to extrapolate that out to um, to something like being anti-capital punishment, I think is a misappropriation of, of what Jesus is saying there. I can think of other reasons why you might be anti-capital punishment that aren't necessarily grounded in uh, in biblical testimony. You know, for example, how do we know that that the the evidence is indeed pointing us in the right answer towards the right answer when it comes to a, a crime? I, I get that, and there have been countless stories of people who have been wrongly executed because either the people involved in the process were unjust, um, or or maybe there was even. Uh, mistakes that were made throughout the process. So I, I can get that absolutely, um, w without a doubt. I'm not one of those people who thinks that we should just willy-nilly uh, use this as a, a means of, of um, seeking justice. But I also wouldn't go so far as to say that we can never be sure. Um, sometimes there is, without question, you know, if it's a mass shooting or something like that, like there's no question that... Mm -hmm people have done certain crimes that warrant a just response in capital punishment. And there's no biblical reason for being against that. So when I ask, can you be against capital punishment as a Christian? Uh, what, what I mean is, you know, is there a real biblical case that you could make against it? Well, I agree with you. I mean, I think if you think it through, um, I don't see a problem as a, as a Christian with capital punishment in principle, provided that there is a robust judicial system which guarantees a fair trial. And, the, and uh, you know, some of the instances, I think, for instance, in the U.S. in past years, there have been, uh, you know, racial motivations where black people have been wrongly convicted of things. We know that's a fact of history. 
uh, including put to death for, for crimes they didn't commit. That's because the judicial system was not operating in the way it should have been operating at all. It, the decks were stacked. And that sort of thing, you know, is, is you, you just can't have that. You, you need to build a robust, fair judicial system. But um, you'll never have a perfect one. Uh, but I, I, to me, uh, if you, capital punishment, you know, is a deterrent and, uh, right. Uh, if you, if you, there's something about it that will stop similar incidents happening, won't stop all similar incidents happening. But I think that if, if people who committed some of these heinous crimes, were put to death in fairly expeditious manner, uh, you know, we would see less such things going on in the future. That's my opinion. But I, I realize, having said that, that our so the social breakdown that's going on, lack of uh, fathers, family breakdown, all this is is producing people who are mentally ill and unbalanced, and that gets into a whole other sphere. Well, it's interesting, right? Because uh, if you were to really, if you were to really be biblical about it, you wouldn't limit something like capital punishment to the most severe of crimes. Yeah, I mean, even well, it's taking a life is what it is. Biblically. Well, so when Paul says in Acts twenty, he said it was Acts twenty six when he says, you know, I'm I'm happy to to bear the penalty for whatever my crimes are. Surely he's not saying, you know, if you found me guilty of murder, then I'll pay the penalty. He's he's referencing far lesser crimes than that. Well, it's 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 hard to say. He's making a rhetorical statement. He's making a rhetorical statement that I'm prepared to accept due punishment, uh, but I won't lie down and accept punishment for something that I haven't done. Um, and therefore, he... But notice in it that he doesn't throw the judicial system out of the window. He appeals to a higher authority. Yeah, I'm just curious. I, I think there are... Um, so just a, a quick little search here. I mean, crimes that were punishable by death in Israel... Uh, homicide, striking one's parents, kidnapping, cursing one's parents, witchcraft and divination, bestiality, worshiping other gods, violating the Sabbath, child sacrifice, adultery, incest, uh, male homosexual intercourse. Um, the, uh, these are all things that are listed in, uh, I'm assuming, Leviticus that warranted capital punishment. Now, obviously, as you said before, you're dealing with a, a theocracy. Um, and so... The New Testament ethic is not, hey, let's bring over everything that was commanded of Israel into our our modern day government. And I'm certainly not suggesting that. Please, nobody take me out of context here. Uh, the principle though, that I'm getting at is I wonder if, uh, if, if severity of crime is something that maybe we're nervous to talk about because we don't want to be seen as heavy handed when in fact a a very robust order of punishment in a society actually will will keep the more severe crimes from happening because we punish even supposed lesser crimes with uh, things that might be perceived as kind of severe. I mean, that seems to be... The yeah, and there. you see, it's that that's a correct observation because everybody knows that, that back in the 1980s and 90s when... Rudy Giuliani was mayor of yeah, New, New York, York. Um, that he started prosecuting the graffiti artists. Right. He started with jaywalking, I think, right? Like, And, and those kind of things. And uh, lo and behold, five or ten years later, the homicide rate drops off. And I had a friend who was living in New York, and he said, it's absolutely remarkable. He started going after these petty crimes, uh, because he had some pretty smart police people, I think, and, and and people that understood what was going on, maybe some psychologists, that if you actually start reducing tolerance for for petty crime, smaller crimes, 
that you'll get a drop off in the bigger crimes too. So because you're establishing a climate in which disrespect of other people is not tolerated. And uh, and that's a concern that we should have in our society today where, you know, we let people off the hook for all sorts of things. And, you know, anyhow. I do, I do think that there's, there's something to be said about that. And in our day and age, you know, where it's considered in, in many circles, especially out here in California, to, to be wrong if you spank your children. So we're, we're very cautious around any kind of punishment that might be perceived as severe or quote unquote abusive. Um, and now we're much more likely to reason out the child's feelings or, you know, something like that. And those kinds of things are being extrapolated across society in more progressive cities. I mean, the, uh, what was the thing during the last couple of years in, in San Francisco, I think it was, where there was like a threshold of theft that was permissible and there was going to be no penalty if you stole anything, you know, under $1,000 or something like that. Um, and you had businesses that were literally closing down because there's no accountability for... Uh, and so you see, in the effort of justice, because you're, I don't know, you're trying to protect underserved people quote unquote oppressed people by uh not having penalty for their their action you actually we are in a very unjust it's, society it's the racially mar marginalized people that suffer the most because they're the ones that live in those cities where you know those idiotic policies are promoted and uh uh and and the record it, i mean you don't have to look very far in, for instance, the United States, to look at the places where those policies have been put in place, uh, it's catastrophic. I mean, there was, I don't know, I saw something the other day in Austin, Texas, there, there was total civil disorder. And, and you know, they fired too many police. People were taking control of parts of the city. And what what good is that supposed to do? You know, it doesn't affect the rich and the wealthy because they're out in the suburbs Right. with their private security guards and all the rest of it. But it affects the people that it's supposed to be, Help. you know, it, it, it hurts the people it's supposed to be helping. Exactly. But we don't want to transgress too much onto political matters. <laughs> At least I don't. I'm always down. Um, yeah. This, uh, this article here says that... Um, a case against capital punishment biblically can be made from John chapter eight, where Jesus's words uh, can be construed as condemning the practice, um, which would be him saying, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh, well, that's true, except except that's passage isn't in the original manuscript. So that argument's easily. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where we don't build theology from from that story. Um, but I yeah. think it takes it takes it out of context anyway. That's what I was gonna say. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, very good. Well, for those of you that maybe have ever uh, heard that that remark, or maybe somebody has even said that to you personally in regards to you can't be anti-abortion and pro-capital punishment. Um, it, this hopefully this conversation has been helpful for you. Uh, the two are absolutely not the same. You know, I, I wouldn't even use the term capital punishment and equivocate that with abortion. I would just call abortion killing an unborn child, uh, which in fact is is murder. And I understand that there are rare scenarios uh, that that option needs to be uh, seriously considered. Uh, but the fact is that those rare scenarios are are not the vast, vast majority of of, uh, of what's happening when somebody gets an abortion. Um, I don't know if you if you all follow, I think it's live action uh, on Instagram, but I'd say that's a, a worthy follow for you. The stories on there are gut-wrenching, and at times I have to put my phone down when I read them or see the pictures that they post, but it's very sobering to be confronted with the reality of the abortion industry in our country and the millions and millions and millions of innocent children who have been killed uh, at the hands of so-called doctors. Um, 
Yeah. Anything you want to say on that before I move on? Well, I, you know, I agree completely with you, and I think um, there is a demonic spirit behind it. I think that there is a spirit of murder in the in the society in which we live, and um, I don't, you know, I often wonder how uh, people live with their consciences, uh, you know, so. But there is redemption and forgiveness by the grace of God, even for people who have gone through abortion. I do think it's really important uh, for churches to uh, open the doors to people even who have had abortions, um, you know, but who are now seeking to be right with God, that we respond in grace and mercy uh, and forgiveness. Um, uh, so... Uh, but yeah, I mean, I hardly agree with you. It's it's not an unforgivable sin. It's it's something that we can be redeemed from without question. But those those things are, uh, there, that kind of redemption is most likely to happen when the church is honest about what she believes and why she believes it. And if we're going to say that every human is made in the image of God. Uh, then we must be then willing to go all the way and say that every human has the right to be born um, and that we don't get to decide. And and this is what makes it so different from capital punishment. It is it is the ending of an innocent human life. Um, and, and when I say innocent, you know, some obviously people will try to catch you on your words and say, well, you know, if the original sin is true, then nobody is actually innocent. But what I mean is that it's a life that has not, that is not guilty of having uh, performed any crime, which is so different from, and is defenseless, is utterly defenseless. Yeah. And uh, and it will only get worse because when this kind of thing gets accepted, then euthanasia obviously goes along with it, and then we start euthanizing all sorts of people, including elderly relatives, because we want their estate. You know, we don't have to wait for it. And, um, you know, or depressed people because we don't want tax dollars being spent on trying to treat chronically depressed people. So just kill them off. And it's a horrible thing. We're we're right back in Nazi Germany. In the, and that's where Planned Parenthood got its inspiration. Yeah, and uh, so a lot of times the logic is, um, a lot of times the logic today is why would you want to bring children into this world anyway? Because our our culture is so nihilistic and so hopeless about the future. And a lot of that connects into uh, things related to conversations on climate change and how, um, how pessimistic we are about our future. Well, if you don't, if you don't want to have children, then I suppose don't have children. I think you're shooting yourself in the foot, but then don't have children, but don't just kill your children. Because, you know, you can say, well, you know, we're going to have an abortion. We don't want to bring our child into this horrible world. Well, if it's that horrible, why don't you just go out and shoot yourself? Oh, no, because they're too busy having a good time to shoot themselves. That's a load of hokum, you know, to be honest. I, I have no time for that kind of argumentation at all. And I, on the, I mean, I'm not, we don't want to wade into the climate change thing or else we'll go from one contention to another. But, um, you know. It's clear that there's a lot of fear. When people use um, fear as a weapon to try to change people's viewpoint on something, that's a very dangerous road to go down. You move away from a factual presentation into a fear-based thing. And I think with climate change, we're really reaping the results of that with, with young people and children are almost as terrified of climate change as I was when I, you know, was growing up, a nuclear war. But you can't compare those two things. You know, they're two different things. And uh, they're com completely different things. Um, Jordan Peterson has been on a kick in the last few months. He's interviewed, I don't know, maybe four or five uh, different individuals who are highly qualified to speak into the issue and it's definitely something worth listening to if you want to get an alternative perspective other than perpetual doom uh, that, that tends to come from 
the the mainstream uh, voices around that topic. Um, and t- to me, as a Christian, I don't see any reason why we would say um, that we should s- stop having children. I think children are still a gift from the Lord, and uh, the promotion of healthy families is good for society. And when we're killing our children, it is only a it's only a matter of time before we kill our culture and we kill our society. Um, I think a lot of it also comes down to as well, and then maybe this kind of comes full circle back to the where we began with the Jesus movement in the the sixties and seventies of the um, things that were happening culturally at the time, particularly as it relates to to feminism and our our more egalitarian view of men and women because if 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 women are going to have the same kind of experience as a man in the world in terms of what they get to do and uh, what their opportunities are then it's it's not a very far leap at all to that to now view something like bearing a child as a as an undue burden that is preventative or even oppressive and keeps them from being able to do the things that they want to do. Uh, now, in saying that, I believe that women should have all kinds of opportunity in terms of work and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it also should be said that when you when you jump onto the out-and-out egalitarian bandwagon, that it is only a matter of time before children are seen as uh, a hassle, not a blessing. It's a culture of death. Go to, you know, Japan or Eastern Germany or, or <clears throat> some of the Eastern European countries, Russia, et cetera, where there's very few children left anymore and you've got just communities of elderly people. And those are places of death. Uh, those are not places of life. And I think, um, you know, if, uh, if we had guided tours of some of those places, we come away horrified and might change our mind on some of these things. I think it also too, it puts women in a very uh, precarious position where they almost feel pressured, like they have to pursue something for the you know for the sake of women's rights, when in fact that they are designed by God to bear children, children and to birth exactly. children. Exactly. Yeah. And when you when you villainize that that kind of life and make it unappealing, I think it puts women in a very in a very a place of deep tension. Well, I, I think it's anti women to downgrade having children and the role of having children. Uh, I don't think that is pro women. I think it's anti women because the the very precious thing that the women are uh, gifted to do, they're denied, and or they're told is not of value. And I'm not sure I understand how that is a statement that favors women. I don't think it is. Um, so, uh, but I think with all these things, it takes time for the pendulum to swing, and unfortunately. A lot of people have to reap the results of decisions they're making. So people that make a decision today that they're not going to have children because of climate change, even though the reality is it's just not convenient. They want to make more money. They want to have independence. They don't want to pay the price is more likely to be the reason. But nevertheless, um, by the time they realize that was a very foolish decision, it's too late. And they're growing old without anyone to look after them. I mean, I, you know, uh, I'm so thankful that we have children and we have grandchildren. And uh, it's not that um, I or that we put an expectation on them to look after us. But you know, if if I died and Elaine was left, uh, she'd have have children and grandchildren there for her she wouldn't just be left alone in the world and so you know my daughter one of my second youngest daughter julia works and has done a fair bit of work in nursing homes and one of the saddest things 
is elderly people are abandoned there. There are relatives, but they just dump them in the nursing home, and that's the end of it, and no one ever comes to see them. And so she's sitting there with elderly people who just want to sit and hold her hand for half an hour, you know, and I think it's it's awful. And uh, and and the, and yet and 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 I say at the end of the day, is this really what's liberating to people? Creating a world like this is this really what is uh, going to help people in the long run, or even make them happy or content? I don't think so. But you know, by the time people realize it, it's too late. Yeah. Well, I just think that we've been sold this lie that. If you're going to have kids, then that puts some stop on a fulfilling life. It's like kids become the enemy of fulfillment. Um, and it even, I think, and I'm not sure what your thoughts are about this, but it's almost like it's seen as mutually exclusive with doing anything else. Like you can't have kids and have a, a meaningful life with passions and, and jobs and, and those kinds of things. Um it's it's not my view that uh, to be a mom means that you're just at home cleaning and cooking all day. I think that life is is much more complex than that. What I see in Adam and Eve's partnership uh, is is more than that. Um, but it certainly seems like that's the picture that's being painted. It's like, well, if you have kids, that's kind of the end of your any kind of advancement in life. And and honestly, even if your life was raising your children, then that's that's not a bad thing. That's a, a beautiful thing. And I don't think it's a bad thing at all. If 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 my wife were were speaking, she would say it's the it was the highest honor and greatest and most fulfilling thing that she could ever have done was to raise our children. Uh and far more meaningful than if she just had, had no children and gone out to work. What do you, you get for that? You know, you go to work, you earn more money and so on, but but how can you stack that against the influence and impact you have on human lives and society through raising children. I think it's just, you know, our materialistic, godless society has got its values completely messed up. Yep. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we appreciate your time as always. Hey, if you haven't already, do us a huge solid and head over to our YouTube channel, and subscribe to us there at Good Theology. Does us a huge favor, even if you're not a YouTube person, uh, it's very helpful for us. And then just one quick reminder before you go, uh, check out Dwell Bible, download it in the App Store, wonderful app. And if you are a church leader, then you can text GOOD to 39383 and they can hook you up with a free account. And uh, you can check it out for yourself and see if that's a good discipleship tool for your church. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.